choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 302 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 14, Commander Alan B. Shepard, Jr., Part 2. After being selected, then came the most interesting part for Shepard, the competition for the first flight into space. Here's how Shepard described it. Well, you know, it was uh, an interesting situation getting together with the seven originals for the first time. And of course, uh, having known some of them before in the, with the Navy connections, uh, but yet all of a sudden realizing that here was competition. There were seven guys competing for the first job or whatever that turned out to be. It, seven guys going for that one job. So on the one hand, there was a sense of friendliness and maybe in some support, but uh, on the other hand, hey, I hope you rest of you guys are happy because I'm going to make the first flight. <laughs> Faced with the intense competition from the other astronauts, particularly John Glenn, Shepard quit smoking and adopted Glenn's habit of taking a morning jog, although he did not go so far as to give up the cocktails or the philandering. On January 19, 1961, Robert Gilruth, the director of NASA's Space Task Group, informed the seven astronauts that Shepard had been chosen for the first American crewed mission into space. We'd been in training for probably 20 months or so uh, toward the end of 1960, early 61, when we all intuitively felt that pretty soon Bob Gilruth had to make a decision as to who was going to make the first flight. And... Uh, when we received word that Bob wanted to see us at five after, in the afternoon one day in our office, sort of felt that perhaps he had decided. There were seven of us then in one office. We had seven desks around <laughs> in the hangar in Langley Field. And uh, Bob walked in, closed the door, and uh, was very matter-of-fact. He said, well, you know, we've... Uh, We've got to decide who's going to make the first flight, and uh, I don't want to pinpoint publicly at this stage one individual. You want within the organization, I want everyone to know that uh, we will designate the first flight and the second flight and a backup pilot. But uh, beyond that, uh, we won't make any public decisions. So he said, uh, Shepard gets the first flight, Grissom gets the second flight, and Glenn is the backup for both of these two suborbital missions. Any questions? 
absolute silence. He said, thank you very much, good luck, turned around and left the room. Well, there I am, looking at six faces looking at me and feeling, of course, totally elated that I had that I'd won the competition, but yet almost immediately afterwards feeling sorry for my buddies because there they were. I mean, they were trying just as hard as I was. And it was a very poignant moment because they all came over, shook my hand, and pretty soon I was the only guy left in the room. <laughs> Shepard later recalled his wife Louise's response when he told her that she had her arms around the man who would be the first man in space. Louise said, quote, Who let a Russian in here? End quote. In his latter years, Shepard would describe his selection for the first American flight into space as his proudest moment. Well, if it's the one thing, um, obviously it had to have been being selected to make the first manned space flight for the United States. Um, uh, that was competition at its best. Uh, and I say this again, not because of the fame that recognition that came with it, but because of the fact that the world's best, uh, the America's best test pilots have been pre-selected, selection process, so and so on, and uh, down to seven guys, and of those seven, I was the first one to go, and that, that has to be, always will be, I guess, the most satisfying thing for me. Shepard named his Mercury spacecraft Freedom 7, and it would be launched atop a Redstone rocket. During training, Shepard actually flew 120 simulated flights. Although his flight was originally scheduled for April 26, 1960, it was postponed several times by unplanned preparatory work. Initially to December 5, 1960, then mid-January 1961, then March, then April, then May 2, 1961, and finally to May 5, 1961. But on April 12, 1961, Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first person in space and the first to orbit the Earth. It was another blow to America's pride. When Shepard heard the news, he slammed his fist down on the table so hard a NASA public relations officer feared he might have broken it. That little uh, little race between Gagarin and me was really, really close. Obviously, their objectives, uh, their capabilities for orbital flight were greater than ours at that particular point. We eventually caught up and went past them, but as you point out, it was the Cold War, there was the competition, we had flown a chimpanzee called Ham in a Redstone-Mercury combination, and everything had worked perfectly except there was a relay which at the end of the powered flight was supposed to eject the escape tower because it was no longer needed. 
separate it from the mercury uh, capsule and eject it. For some reason, with the ham's flight, it fired, but it did not separate itself. So the chimp was lifted to another 10 to 15 miles uh, in altitude, another 20 or 30 miles in range. There was absolutely nothing wrong with anything else wrong with the mission. So our recommendation strongly was, okay, let's put Shepard in the next one. Everything worked fine. So if the thing happens again, no big deal. Shepard goes a little higher. Werner said no. He said we want everything absolutely right. So we flew another unmanned mission before Gagarin flew, then his flight, and then mine. So what it was, it was really touch and go there. If we'd put me in that unmanned mission, then we would have actually flown first. But it was, it was, it was tight. Finally, May 5th, 1961 came. Here's Shepard describing his pre-flight experience. You know, actually the checkout, the countdown had been going very, very well. Of course, Glenn was the backup pilot and he'd been in on all the, all the pre-flight stuff. Uh, the Redstone checked out well. We had uh, virtually no problems at all and were scheduled for, I believe it was the 2nd of May. Uh, and I was dressed uh, just about going out the door when there was a tremendous rainstorm, thunderstorm came over and obviously they decided to cancel it, which I was pleased they did. <laughs> it was rescheduled three days later and uh, of course went through the same routine. The weather was good. And I remember driving down to, uh, to the launching pad in a van which was capable of you know, providing a comfort for us and with the pressure suit on and any last minute adjustments and temperature devices and so on that had to be made. They were all equipped to do that. The doctor, uh, Bill Douglas, was, was in there. We pulled up in front of the launch pad. Of course, it was dark. Uh, the liquid oxygen was was uh, venting out from the uh, from the redstone. Searchlights all over the place, and I remember saying to myself, "Well, I'm not going to see this redstone again." And you know, pilots love to go out and kick the tires, and it was sort of like reaching out and kicking the tires on the redstone, because I stopped and looked at it. You know, to look back and and up. Uh, at this beautiful rocket and uh, thought, well, okay, Buster, let's go and get the job done. So I sort of stopped and kicked the tires, then went on in and... Uh... And then the excitement started building, I think, at that point. Uh, fortunately, in my case, after I was strapped in um, and ready to go, basically, we had a hold because of a, of a had a change of generator in the, in the Redstone rocket. And I had, to, had a chance to sit back and relax a little bit and, and again go through the process of what do I do for the first few minutes and first few seconds of the flight. And so I was really pretty relaxed by the time that liftoff finally occurred. I guess my pulse really wasn't much over about 110 or so. I've forgotten exactly what it was, but everybody thought I was a pretty cool customer. Uh, but at that point, you're basically thinking about 
what do I do if this goes wrong? What do I do if that goes wrong? You know what critical things have to happen in sequence. Uh, in some cases, the fact that you're accelerating with the thrust of the rocket, uh, that's good. It's very positive because, you know, the, the rocket is doing its job and it's doing it correctly. At 10.34 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Alan Shepard blasted off on the Mercury Redstone 3 mission. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Ignition. Liftoff. Liftoff. And 34 minutes after the hour. Launch is okay. Roger. His performance is perfect. Velocity's okay, pitch 180 degrees, altitude 365,000. Roger, 2G, Kevin holding. Freedom 7 is still go, the trajectory is a-okay. You couldn't have told the difference between the flight and a simulation. Freedom 7 with astronaut Alan B. Shepard reports that the fuel system is go, 4G, cabin 5.5 pounds per square inch, oxygen go, all systems go. Capsule separate. Here's how Shepard remembered the flight. But it's, you know, it's just uh, going over a checklist of one after the other. You've done the simulator so many times. A sense of being excited, you don't have that really when, when the flight is going on. Excited before, as soon as a liftoff occurs, you're busy doing what you have to do. Like I remember just reaching the apex of the trajectory when I was going to be in the middle of the weightlessness and I was looking at the periscope and, and all of a sudden I said, you know, somebody's going to ask me how it feels to be weightless, so you better pay attention to how it feels to be weightless. So I was going through the motions of flying, but at the same time trying to assess physiologically how I felt and uh, was I dizzy or confused and so on. And then I thought, well, somebody's going to ask me how the earth looks, and so I looked down through the periscope, which is all we had at that point, and uh, made a few remarks, I think, on the tape or perhaps on... Uh, on the radio, uh, the view which I could see my ability to. And I said, well, now i got to get ready for re-entry, so enough of that subjective thinking and uh, get back to the objectivity required to get this baby oriented to come back in. So you can see you could really go through a, a whole gamut of, uh, of feelings, uh, of nervousness, of elation. I mean, obviously at that point I was delighted the rocket had worked perfectly and all I had to do was survive the reentry forces. Uh, and you do it on a fairly, like in that flight, a rather short period of time, just 16 minutes, as a matter of fact. Shepard's launch was seen live on television by millions. Unlike Gagarin's 108 minute orbital flight in a Vostok spacecraft, Shepard stayed on a suborbital trajectory for the 15 minute flight, which reached an altitude of 101.2 nautical miles and fell to a splashdown 263 nautical miles down the Atlantic Missile Range. Also unlike Gagarin, whose flight was strictly automatic, Shepard did have some control over the Freedom 7 spacecraft, Attitude in particular. One thing that was not seen at the time by the public was Shepard's pre-launch emergency. 
Because the entire journey was only expected to take 15 minutes, Shepard's suit did not have any provision for elimination of bodily waste. After being strapped into the capsule seat, launch delays kept him in that suit for eight hours. Shepard's endurance gave out before launch, and he was forced to empty his bladder into his suit. Uh, There was a time during the countdown when uh, there was a problem with the inverter in the Redstone. Gordon Cooper was the voice communicator in the blockhouse. So he called and said that uh, the inverter is not working in the Redstone. They're going to pull the gantry back in and we're going to change inverter. It's probably going to take about an hour, an hour and a half. And I said, well, um, if that's the case, then I would like to get out and relieve myself. We had been working with the device to uh, collect urine during the flight that really worked pretty well in zero gravity, but it really didn't work very well when you're lying on your back with your feet up in the air like you were on the, on the redstone. I thought well, my bladder was getting a little full, and if I had some time, I'd like to relieve myself. So I said, uh, I said, uh, Gordon, would you check and see if I could get out and, and relieve myself quickly while they're fixing the... And Gordon came back in about, I guess there was some discussions going on outside. It took about three or four minutes and finally came back and said, no, he says, when Brown says the astronaut will stay in the nose cone. So I said, well, all right, uh, that's fine, but I'm going to go to the bathroom. And they said, well, you can't do that because you've got wires all over your body and have short circuits. I said, don't you guys have a switch that turns off those wires? And they said, yeah, well, yeah. So I said, said, please turn the switch off. Well, I relieved myself, and of course, with a cotton undergarment, which we had on, it soaked up immediately in the in the undergarment, and with 100% oxygen flowing through that spacecraft, uh, it was I was totally dry by the time we launched. Splashdown occurred with an impact comparable to landing a jet aircraft on an aircraft carrier. A recovery helicopter arrived after a few minutes, and the capsule was lifted partly out of the water to allow Shepard to leave by the main hatch. He squeezed out of the door and into a sling hoist and was pulled into the helicopter, which flew both the astronaut and the spacecraft to the aircraft carrier USS Lake Champlain. The whole recovery process took just 11 minutes. After Shepard's flight, reporters asked him what he thought about as he sat atop the Redstone rocket waiting for liftoff. He replied, quote, the fact that every part of this ship was built by the lowest bidder, end quote. NASA called in the spacesuit's manufacturer, B.F. Goodrich, and by the time John Glenn's Mercury Atlas VI orbital flight the following year, a liquid waste collection feature had been added to the suit. Shepard was celebrated as a national hero, honored with ticker tape parades in Washington, New York, and Los Angeles, and received the NASA Distinguished Service Medal from President John F. Kennedy. I also want to again express my congratulations uh, to Alan Shepard. We're uh, very proud of him. And I speak on behalf of uh, the Vice President, who is Chairman of our Space Council and who bears great responsibilities in this field, the members of the House and Senate Space Committee who are with us today, 
and uh, this decoration, which has gone from the ground up. Yeah. <laughs> Here's how Shepard remembered the ceremony. We were invited back to Washington after the after the mission, and I got a nice little little medal from uh, the president, and uh, which, by the way, he dropped. Uh, we, I don't know whether you remember that scene or not, but <laughs> but but Jimmy Webb had the thing in a in a box, and it had been loosened from its from its uh, little clip, and so as the president made a speech and said, "I now present you a medal," and he turned around and Webb leaned forward, and the thing slid off the box and went to the deck, and Kennedy and I both bent over for it. Almost, we almost banged heads. Kennedy made it first, Jack made it first, and he, and he said, here, Shepard, I give you this medal that comes from the ground up. <laughs> and then Jack is sitting there, she's mortified. She said, Jack, pin it on him, pin it on him. So he then recovered to the point where he pinned the medal on, everything was fine, and we had a big laugh out of that. After being selected as a Mercury 7 astronaut and with a successful first flight under his belt, Shepard had to learn to deal with fame. I didn't volunteer uh, to become a hero. Uh, and I certainly think in the early days none of us realized what the positive response would be uh, with respect to those of us who were the first to fly, the first to orbit, the first to land on the moon. There have been a handful of us, of course, that have been singled out because we were the first to whatever. Uh, and uh, becoming a public figure overnight was a little difficult at first, I guess. First of all, it wasn't because, it, it was because I hadn't really expected it. Uh, and all of a sudden realizing that people who wanted autographs didn't always ask at the right time. Uh, that they weren't always polite, that uh, they sort of, I guess in our case, figured we were public property because they were taxpayers and uh, we appreciated their contributions. But, I mean, then I had a little difficulty with that. And then I, and then, uh, and then I one day was looking at some film, um, which was the presentation of a medal from President Kennedy to me in the Rose Garden, and I made a few brief remarks afterward, and I said in a sense it was really not because of my individual effort, but really because of the efforts of the dedicated people that had worked with us on the program over the years, and I said, you know, you really meant that when you said that, and I think that if you really appreciate what these people have done, then you will respond with a very positive image uh, to what uh, degree of attention and adulation uh, you're getting. At that point, uh, from there on out, it's been, it's been relatively easy for me to understand why it's happened uh, and to try to be reasonably uh, positively responsive to it. Shepard went on to serve as capsule communicator for John Glenn's Mercury Atlas VI orbital flight, which Shepard had also been considered for. And he was also Capcom for Scott Carpenter's Mercury Atlas VII flight. 
He was the backup pilot for Gordon Cooper for the Mercury Atlas 9 mission, nearly replacing Cooper after Cooper flew low over the NASA administration building at Cape Canaveral in an F-106. In the final stages of Project Mercury, Shepard was scheduled to pilot the Mercury Atlas 10, which was planned as a three-day mission. He named the Mercury spacecraft Freedom 7-2 in honor of his first spacecraft and had his name painted on it. But NASA Administrator James Webb needed the Mercury program resources on the Gemini program, and he felt like it was time to move on. However, Shepard did not accept this and went as far as making a personal appeal to President John F. Kennedy. After Cooper finished his day and a half uh, orbital mission, there was another spacecraft ready to go. And my thought was to put me up there and just let me stay until something ran out, until the batteries ran down, or until the oxygen ran out, or until we lost the control system or something. Uh, then just sort of open-ended kind of a mission. And uh, so I recommended that. And they said uh, that they didn't expect to hear anything else from me. <laughs> But I remember when, uh, when Cooper and uh, his family and the other astronauts and families were invited to the White House for cocktails with Jack Kennedy. And we stopped at Jim Webb's house first and had a little warm up there. And I was politicking with Webb and I said, you know, Mr. Webb, uh, we could put this baby up there in just a matter of a few weeks. I mean, it's all ready to go. I have the rockets. We have, and just let it, you know, let me sit up there and, you know, see how long it'll last. Get another record out of it. Well, he said, no, I don't. Uh, he said, I really don't think so. I think we've got to get on with Gemini. And I said, well, I'm going to see the president in a little while. Do uh, you, you mind if I mention it to him? He said, no, but you tell him my side of the story, too. So I said, all right. So we get over there, and we're all sipping our booze. And uh, I got Kennedy aside, and I said, uh, there's a possibility we could make another long-duration Mercury flight, maybe two, maybe three days. Uh, and uh, we'd like to do that. He said, well, what does Mr. Webb think about it? And I said, Webb doesn't want to do it. He said, well, he said, I think I'll have to go along with Mr. Webb. <laughs> <laughs> On June 12, 1963, Webb announced publicly that Mercury had accomplished all its goals and there would be no more missions flown. Even if Alan Shepard disagreed, it was time to move on to Gemini. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 302 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 14, Commander Allen B. Shepard, Jr., Part 2. 
Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 131 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. I want to credit my sources for this episode, the Johnson Space Center, Smoke Jumper Moon Pilot by Willie Mosley, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Flight by Chris Kraft, C-SPAN, The Academy of Achievement, Light This Candle by Neil Thompson, and Wikipedia. Well, Shepard didn't really have a problem with going right to the top when he didn't like something. (laughs) Well, I thought today we would continue reading some of your email submissions for the favorite episode that you sent in for the 300th episode celebration. I have Mrs. SRH here with me, and we are going to read these out in episode order. So if you want to go back and listen to some of them, you will know the episode number and what it's about. There were about eight of you that had favorite episodes in the Apollo 11 series, and three of you selected episode 213, which was the launch. This first email comes from Richard E., And he says, by a long shot, the best episode ever is Apollo 11, The Launch, episode 213. I look at space history differently ever since I listened to that podcast. My favorite space quote used to be Neil Armstrong saying those famous words on the moon. But ever since that episode, I have a new favorite space history quote, quote, which is, Liftoff. We have liftoff. 20 minutes past the hour. Liftoff of Apollo 11. Thank you, Richard. And I, now I have one from Clayton V. And he chose the same episode. And he says, I heard audio of the landing many times, but I never before heard much of the countdown other than the last few seconds and the liftoff. I really enjoyed it, and I only wish I had been around to see and hear it live. Unfortunately, I was launched. I was not launched until almost a month later. <laughs> Thank you, Clayton. All right, this is Robert S., and he has the same episode number. And he says, "This is tough, but I really like the countdown of Apollo 11. The chatter, astronauts report, it feels good." Guidance is internal. Ignition sequence starts. All engines running. Liftoff. We have liftoff. 42 minutes past the hour. I'm usually working when I listen to that, but I had to stop. The build-up and anticipation leading up to that minute or so felt really special. I re-listened to it several times. Thank you, Robert. Rob W. from Pennsylvania chose episode 214, Apollo 11, The Climb to Orbit. I loved the audio of the liftoff and all that went on during launch. Thanks, Rob. Josh A. said, Clearly, the winner is 221. Apollo 11, Lunar Landing Part 3. I loved the dramatic telling, the ground and flight loop, and the replay of the TV coverage. Thanks, Josh. Jeremy S. from Utah wrote, I'm sure I'm not the only one to choose this episode, but I have to go with episode number 221, Apollo 11 Lunar Landing Part 3. 
So much effort went into this moment over the previous years, contemplating a challenge we'd undertaken nearly a decade earlier, and the drama and tension of those few minutes that was smoothly overcome by an expert test pilot using all of his skills and experience to do just what was needed to get them down to the surface safely and complete the mission. It's not only a poignant moment for humanity, but one that will be remembered and celebrated for all of humanity's future. Your coverage of the landing was ideal, giving a detailed and annotated account of those final minutes, intermixed with the actual radio communications, and topped off with sound effects of cheers from the back room upon touchdown. And finally, ending the episode with the public live broadcast of those same final minutes, showing the deep emotion felt by everyone during that historic moment. This episode is an extremely well-made production from start to finish. Thanks, Jeremy. Don H. chose episode 223, Apollo 11 Moonwalk, and he writes, The Apollo 11 landing podcast was without a doubt my favorite podcast, but not for the reason of most. My mother woke my sister and myself up telling us that we needed to get up for something very important. I walked into the living room with the glow of the TV shining off my father. I was seven, and I remember how focused Dad was on the TV. Mom said an American is about to step on the moon. I remember Neil Armstrong stepping on the moon. Don't really remember his famous line, but I remember how special that moment was. Less than four months later, Dad was killed in a car crash and our world became very dark. I was so caught up in my sorrow that I don't even remember Apollo 12 and 13. So whenever I hear Houston Tranquility Base here, the eagle has landed, or that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, I get a tear in my eye because that moment in history reminds of the greatest man I ever knew, my daddy. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for sharing that one, Don. We really appreciate it. Christian R. from California wrote, Choosing just one episode is tough. So many great ones. I think the one I'd choose is the one that touched me most personally. Number 225, Apollo 11, Moonwalk Part 3. Episode 225 was my first encounter with the story of Armstrong's daughter, Karen, and his experience thinking about her on the moon. It moved me very deeply. Your account was faithful, authentic, and reserved. I recall listening to it while walking the dogs. When you came to the part about Muffy, I paused and wept. It had only been a year after my wife and I lost our sons. Learning that my hero had endured the same grief and taken it to the moon with him solemnly and stoically played a big part in my recovery. Thank you, Christian, for sharing that. Yes, thank you very much for sharing that, Christian. That meant a lot to us. Okay, the pictures for this week's episode are available on the website, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you'll check that out. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here, you may have noticed that we don't have any commercials or ad revenue, nor do we have a government grant or a corporate endowment. We are entirely listener-supported. 
Please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Click on the orange donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they chose to donate, as well as being entered into the weekly giveaways that we're going to do in just a few minutes. In the meantime, we were pleased to receive several contributions to support the podcast over the past week. Robert W. from Pennsylvania sent in another donation and moved to the Salute Skylab level with rocket emoji. Colin S. from Pennsylvania donated at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. Sherwood J. from Minnesota donated at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. Tim R. from Georgia donated at the Apollo level. Christopher B. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. And Hank R. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. We are at 225 Patreon donors. I think that's the highest we've ever been. With a goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. Our total donors for 2019 have reached 345 with a goal of reaching 600 in 2019. For the 345 of you who have already donated this year, I certainly appreciate it. This week we're giving away the SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. And here is Mrs. SRH. I randomly selected Ryan Lemieux. Ryan Lemieux, if you would email us at mike at spacerockethistory.com and tell us your address, we will mail this out to you. Congrats, Ryan. Okay, folks, that's all we have for this week. I will try to have episode 303 posted by next Thursday. So long for now.